I love you folks, and it is always a joy to be back. I've gone around the world and returned in one piece. I came today to say thank you for standing with me during my last trip in Africa. And I came today to give you a bit of report. It is the biblical model that when missionaries left and they were sent on their way, prayed for and supported, they came back and told the church what God did in the mission field. And so it is only right that you hear a bit of that this morning. I'm still going to preach my sermon be shorter, but I think it is right that you know just how God used your money and how God used your prayers. I came today also not only to give thank you but, uh, and also to report, but also to ask for your prayers again. The mission is not over. We just begun. And so, as you stood with me this last time, I'm going to need you one more time to stand with me in prayer that we might claim the continent of Africa back to the Lord's. That hearts of men and women, boys and girls, orphans and widows, might be renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the masses and the grace of God, by the blood of the Lamb that was shed on Calvary. Because only He can do that. I had a long summer. This time it's going to be even longer. In seven countries in East Africa, begun by evangelism that I do often. And I'm going to shorten this because we don't have all the time uh, in the world to talk about everything because there's a lot to talk about. But I showed, um, I talked with you about last time, I, back in Africa this last summer, and my teams spoke to 55,000 students all over East Africa and beyond. This is the place where 75% of the population is under the age of 19, and I have an unprecedented privilege of being able to walk into a school and everything stops for two hours. And they would allow me to talk to kids, primary school, secondary school, high school, uh, um, uh, college uh, age students. And by the time we were done, 55,000 students had had responded to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. There is a big harvest in Africa. There is a revival that is going on in that continent in a big way. It's so much so that even though I come back uh, to America, I, I, I step at Louisville International Airport and I begin looking back and asking when am I returning. You see, it is such an honor to do what we're doing. It's a great privilege to live, to live when we are living. But as I shared with you last time as well, there is only one Juma, uh, and one Juma is not enough, and so we need many more Jumas. With many, many, many people coming to the Lord in the continent of Africa, my realization is this. Some of the most dangerous people are new believers. Dangerous in this sense. They are enthusiastic. They have the energy and the joy. And they can run all over themselves if somebody does not ground them in the word of God, mature them in the word of God, to grow them in the word of God. They can easily form a cult. If they know they have the joy of the spirit in them, but they don't know the word of God, they will grab anything that comes. And so it is incumbent upon us to realize that the Great Commission does not begin with salvation, rather does not end with salvation, it begins with it. 
And so I was able to work with 900 pastors all over East Africa, teaching them, grounding them in the basics of the word of God, that they can go back to their churches and their communities and preach the gospel and disciple the new converts. And as I shared with you last time, it is also a continent that is wallowing in all sorts of trouble. It is a continent that is the headquarters of HIV AIDS in the world. And with the consequences of that, um, orphans everywhere. It is also the continent with so, so many tribal warrings. I had the time this morning to talk you about some. And so there are orphans everywhere. And so in our last uh, visit, we, able, we were able to minister to so, so many orphanages in the region. You cannot close your eyes and act like you did not see them. They're everywhere. Jesus says, pure, uh, uh, James says, pure and acceptable religion is to visit the orphans and widows in their time of need. You see, somebody has to be the arm that Christ reaches out to touch, to bless, to lift up, to encourage, and to comfort. Those orphans will go back in the same circle, get HIV AIDS if nobody cares about them. And so we need minister to them, provided food for the hungry, this last summer also we initiated a project that is going on. Uh, I call it Hope Mission Center in southern Kenya, where a number of things are happening, uh, including this coming summer. Uh, it is, uh, we, we, we got a, a project of uh, drilling a well for this community that would walk miles and miles and miles and miles. A woman with a kid on her back, with a pot on her, on her head, and going miles to look for water, finding a stagnant water, getting it, bringing it home only, and serving it to, to her children, but not knowing that she just gave her children poison, contaminated water. It kills people more than HIV AIDS in Africa. And so we're drilling a well in southern Kenya, in Kosele community, in partnership with First Baptist Church of Pelham in Birmingham. I'm heading there this week to preach in their missions conference this coming uh, uh, Sunday. But that church also, it is not enough that people get physical water. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, I'm going to give you a different kind of water. The, 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 the well you're drilling will provide water that will cool the physical thirst, but it cannot quench the spiritual thirst. And so we are, we are building a church, first biblical Baptist church in the region to the best of my knowledge, that will provide people with a way to listen to the word of God preach, a call to come to the Savior, and a mandate to go out to the world and preach the gospel. Tomorrow, I meet with Apostle Bonona, Russell Springs, Kentucky, Realizing the need for the orphans in the region, we are building an orphanage in the same property as well, most likely this coming summer. Another project on the same property with my team from Walnut Street Baptist Church this coming summer, there's a possibility we may end up with a Bible college as well. And I want to bring this dear pastor and friend of mine once in a while for two weeks to be able to bring a thousand pastors and allow him to spend one week with, with them to ground them in the word of God and challenge them to go back to their churches and preach the gospel. There are many more projects coming up. And so my journey took me around. When I left the country, I just gave a lecture at the PhD level on the Rwandan genocide. And I thought I knew everything I knew about, I mean, everybody needed to know about the genocide that took place in Rwanda in the year 1994. Until I got there, 
And ladies and gentlemen, when I left Rwanda, I was numb, completely numb. As I stood in the Rwanda Genocide Museum and saw hundreds of skulls of people who were butchered without any warning and without any reason. A Hutu pastor would pull me aside and tell me a story. He told me of how one day the militia and the, kill and the killers and the murderers went to this village and gathered men, women, and children. These killers had already dug a cave in a mountain. They took this whole village, men, women, and children, they took them, they stuck them one by one in this cave. Then they built a block at the entrance with stones, cemented it. They left a little hole about this size. Then they lit a fire and the smoke goes inside. And the people, men, women, children began to choke and to scream until there was no noise left inside. That is human cruelty. That is why there is something wrong with the human heart. That is why a human heart needs a renewal. I stood my last Sunday in Kigali, Rwanda, in a church about 500 members. And during the time of greeting, the bishop called me aside and he said, you look, you see all these young men in their 20s and above? And I said, yes. And he said, nearly all of them are murderers. Each one of these young men killed somebody during the genocide. Pastor Jamal, the problem is this. The warlords and the political leaders use these people, young people, to kill and to maim and to murder and to rape. And they left them with the blood in their hand. They're walking around with the blood in their hand and they don't know what to do with it. And ladies and gentlemen, I contend to you this morning that is, there is nothing that can wash away that guilt. You give them money, you give them education, you give them what? Only the blood of Christ can wash away. Those blood-stained hands, a guilty hearts. Only Christ can reconcile these young men and women with God in a powerful way. And so I came here today to tell us the mission is not over. There is still work to do. I wish I could talk to you about Tunisia and Libya. I wish I could talk to you about, about Sudan and the two million people butchered there. I'm going to Congo this summer. I wish I could talk to you about the Democratic Republic of Congo, that big country in pieces. I've not even talked about hunger and malaria and everything else. The world needs Jesus. And I'm heading back. I'm heading back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to need your prayers again. And this time around, I will not just be in seven countries. I will be in ten countries. Our goal this summer is to engage 100,000 Africans with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In my report, in my report which I just posted on my blog, I said, you have you've heard about the word revolution and so much so that maybe you're tired of it, but I'm taking another revolution in Africa. It is not the kind in Libya and Tunisia and Egypt. This is a gospel revolution. This is the revolution that Pastor Jamal prayed about. It revolutionizes. It changes men and women from within. And brings a reconciliation between them and God. We are engaging 3,000 pastors 
I have a team from Billy Graham's Association in Florida coming to conduct one large pastors conference in Nairobi for over 2,000 pastors. I have 14 leadership forums lined up all over 10 countries in Africa. There is a work ahead of us, and I'm going to need your prayers just one more time. Just one more time. I call your attention very quickly. This is going to be one of my shortest sermons. If you know me well, I don't preach short sermons. In Africa, I preach for seven hours and beyond. And so I'm going to preach this short sermon. I'm going to be very sad. No, really. I don't want to keep you here. We didn't plan for lunch. But I, as a Baptist preacher, it is only right that we hear a bit of God's word this morning. And I call your attention to the book of Luke, chapter 4. Luke, chapter number 4. Let's stand together for the reading of the word of God, if you are able to stand. Luke, chapter number 4, and I'm going to uh, begin in verse number 14. Luke chapter number 4, and I'm going to begin in verse number 14. If you're there with me, let us read. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. And the news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogue, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And as he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written these words. And I read them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down and the eyes of all were in the synagogue, those, those who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilling your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which, he, which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say, this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have had done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Father, thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit around the world. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in this church. Father, thank you for these wonderful saints of God this morning. For the opportunity and privilege to come and worship with them. Holy Spirit, I pray that you, you bless our time together. But as we began in the song in the beginning, I pray that we leave this place with our hearts renewed for you. Holy Spirit, only you can do that. Help me to communicate your message and speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. I want to talk to you very quickly about the mission in progress, the title of my sermon. I have not called it the accomplished mission because the work goes on. It is mission in progress. I look at this passage, ladies and gentlemen, 
And I find three very important things that I need to remind us about. Number one, I find this passage what I call messianic. That means the message is talking about the Messiah. For the first time, Christ comes to a synagogue and they accept him as a rabbi. It was the tradition that when a rabbi comes in, that you hand him the book and you ask him, do you have a word for encouragement? And so they, uh, they, they gave him the book because they knew he was a rabbi. But Christ is going to correct that thinking. He's going to tell them, that he who walked in the synagogue this morning is much more than a rabbi. And he's going he's gonna to prove it to them by reading from the Torah their own scriptures. And so he found a place that it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. That word in Hebrew is Messiah, meaning anointed one. Christ is telling them, the one standing before you this morning is the one that Isaiah talked about. I am more than a rabbi. I am more than a Jew. This is the fulfilled promise given to Abraham, given to Isaiah, given to the prophets. Now, why is this important, ladies and gentlemen? Pastor Jamal, if Christ is not who he claims he is, then you and I are wasting our time here this morning. If Christ is just another rabbi, if he is just another good teacher, ladies and gentlemen, you wasted your money sending me to Africa. You wasted your prayers praying for me to go to Africa. The only reason why you and I can do what we are doing is because we believe we have a unique savior. We have, we have the promise given to Isaiah fulfilled before us. Jesus is the savior. I read a lot about the trends of missions around the world and more so in the West. And I want, to, I want to warn you in a good way. There is a trend going on in the West that is so against Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. You can pray in Congress. You can pray in public. You can pray in public school as long as you don't mention Jesus Christ. Oh, I remember when I was preaching one time at University of Kentucky and I was done preaching and I actually, when I, when, I, when, I, when I was done preaching, I called them to come to respond to the gospel. And this person comes and whispers in my ears and he says, you are not supposed to do that. I said, do what? He said, you are not supposed to talk about Christ and give invitation. I said, get it from me. Any time you call Charles Juma to preach, you will hear about Jesus. I have no other message. What do I tell you? You know enough about life more than I do. You read, you read a lot. You watch television. You are entertained. I have nothing to give you if I don't have Christ. Remember those words of Peter and John? Silver and gold, we have none. But that which we have, we give. That is Christ Jesus. Somebody predicted not too long ago, some scholars, that in about between seven and nine years, Christianity will, be, will, be go, will have gone into extinction, will be gone completely. In the West, including Canada, I hear a lot of what we call neo-atheists, people who don't believe in God, uh, Richard Dawkins and, and, and Steve uh, uh, Hawking and... and uh, and Christopher Hitchens and many others that are so anti-Christ 
I don't know what he did to them. This is a savior who came to offer life, to, lo to love and comfort and forgiveness. What did he do to them? And ladies and gentlemen, you can, you can talk about any God out there and nobody's going to bother about it. Anytime you bring, you, you bring Christ into the equation, everything goes haywire. And rightly so, because he is the Savior. You, you take Christ. The, 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 the reason Islam is wrong, the reason Hinduism is wrong, the reason Buddhism is wrong, because there is no Christ in them. Any religion without Jesus is nothing but a religion. The reason Christianity is what it is is because of Christ. He is the Savior. And he's telling them this morning, the one who walked before you is none other than the son of Abraham, the son of uh, David, the one that was promised. And so, number one, the message is messianic. Uh, uh, it is important we understand. And, and, and I, everywhere I preach around the West, I'm beginning to emphasize, do not let Christ go. Hold on to Christ because to the degree and to the extent that Christ goes, so the church dies. There are churches in this country that do not mention the word Christ. The only time you hear the word the words Jesus Christ is when somebody falls in the stairs. And I want to tell you, you walk in there, I don't care what else is true in, in those churches when Christ is not the center of the church, but church is dead, period. I'm going to Rwanda, I'm going to Congo, I'm going to Malawi, I'm going to Somalia, I'm going to Ethiopia, I will be in Tanzania. The reason I want to burn your money, my energy, is because I believe I have a savior who alone can save the world. I'm convicted and convinced I have a savior like no other savior. I have a savior who alone can save my mother, who alone can save my neighbor, who alone can save my country, who alone can save my continent, who alone can bring comfort and forgiveness to mankind. So it is important that we confirm and affirm that Jesus is the Savior and is the Messiah. But secondly, this message is not just messianic. The message is missiological. Because the Messiah um, was not simply sent to come and set up his kingdom. No, he was sent here for a purpose. The Messiah is also the missionary. He, is, he has come but he has come, sent, anointed by God for a reason. And he's going to share with us those reasons in verse number... Um, he's going to share with us those reasons in verse number 18. He's going to say these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. By the way, I want you to notice something here very quickly this morning, I want you to notice the world to which the Messiah is sent. This world here is not a very good world. This world here is messed up. This world here is sick. Those of you who study languages, read those adjectives with me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the what? To the poor. He has sent me to heal the what? The brokenhearted. Is there anyone in this building that does not understand brokenheartedness? Is there, is there, if you're watching your television, and if you don't turn on your television tonight and watch what happened in Japan, and watch what is happening in Libya, 
and watch what is happening in, in Tunisia and watch what is happening in Afghanistan and watch what is happening in your neighborhood and you will come to the conclusion that the world is sick. And so we understand why the Messiah is sent to the world because this world needs redemption. This world needs reconciliation. This world needs healing. And so he says, he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And ladies and gentlemen, I've come face to face with the poor of the world. I've seen a mother watching her son die because they could not feed it. Mothers in, in this building, you understand what it means to watch your baby die slowly and there is nothing you can do about it. He came to the poor. But I've also seen the brokenhearted. I just talked with a widow, a lady from Rwanda, married to a professor at Nairobi University, the only breadwinner in the family, a lady who had lost everything, and I watched her cry in anguish and pain and brokenheartedness. I've seen that. In my little hotel in Yugis, where I stay when I go see my parents, there is a mortuary. And back in my culture, people wail and cry. And I watch this little old woman who just lost her son, the only one who would bring bread and food. And this old woman is going to die. Her hope is gone. I've seen brokenheartedness. And only Jesus can pick up those broken pieces and put it together again in a new creation and comfort and peace. Oh, he has sent me to heal the brokenheartedness. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And ladies and gentlemen, I watched them as well. I wish I had the time to tell you about watching uh, witch doctors who are blinded and, cap and, and captured by the enemy turn around and burn their charms, kneel down before the living God, the only God there is, Jesus Christ. Claiming and proclaiming the King of kings and the Lord of lords. One day, I am preaching to a crowd of 60,000 people, and I have about 50 Americans with me in second largest city in Tanzania called Mwanza. And so I'm preaching from Monday to Sunday. And I give out my outline so people can know what is coming up tomorrow. And so on Friday, I'm talking about biblical healing. On Saturday, I'm talking about hell. On Sunday, I'm talking about heaven. That was my message last time I was here. And... And so there is a sheik. A sheik is a very high-ranking high teacher in the mosque in Islam. He is drawn to come and hear the message, but he cannot come closer because there are so many followers in town, and he does not want to see them see him. He does not want those people to know that he too came to the meeting. So he stood miles and miles and miles away on Friday and he hears the gospel and he goes home and he says to himself, don't go back. You will be found. But he goes back and something draws him back on Saturday to hear about hell. And so he stood way, way back again and he came back the following day having told himself, don't go back. He came again on Saturday to hear about hell. Going back, he said, please don't return. They will find you. But he could not resist the message on heaven. So on Sunday, he came and stood far away again. And when Amir Isa came, um, he waited like, like Nicodemus until the darkness fell and everybody was gone. And, and he sneaked his way onto the pulpit, found my translator, and, and the vehicle comes for me, and I'm going to the hotel, and my translator says, 
I will find you in the tail. I'm coming. In less than five minutes, he comes in with a man by name Amir Isa, the highest ranking teacher in the second largest mosque in Tanzania. Amir Isa that night came to the Lord. Mm -hmm. But ladies and gentlemen, his salvation will, will shake the whole Islamic world. They were nuts. They want to kill him. They could not believe his followers got confused. You taught us against Christianity. What happened to you? But you see, Christ set captives free. He does. For when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, the Bible says. And so Amir Isa takes off with me. He becomes my cameraman. And so he's taking pictures wherever I go. But we notice something. Every time the church gathers to praise, to dance, to worship, Amir Isa would cry and cry and cry. And we, we go to him and we ask him, one time, Amir Isa, what is wrong? Why are you crying all the time? The church is worshiping. And this was his answer. He said, Pastor, I cannot believe how blind and captive I was in Islam. I did not know that you can worship the living God. I did not know that you can approach God and call him Father. I did not know that you can endear yourself to Christ and call him a friend. Because the God of Islam is distance and you don't relate to him like you relate to my savior jesus christ you don't call him a comforter you don't call him a friend you don't call him my shepherd and my provider you don't in islam he is a, a god uh, with with a tie in the court somewhere in office who knows in what world and you only hope the arabic words inshallah if God wills, you don't know for sure. You don't know. But you see, Jesus came to set, to set captives free. And I've seen him do that with Muslims and with witch doctors, with professors and with farmers, with children and with adults. In Africa and in America, Jesus is the same. And he sets people free he does he came to set them free he came to open up their eyes because he says and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed by all means but ladies and gentlemen that is not all this message is not only messianic this message is not only missiological this message is also measured that means this message will not go on forever. Time will come when preaching will stop, when the world will end, when Jesus will come back. This message is measured because in verse number 19, he's saying he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. By implication, there is such a thing called acceptable year of the Lord. And I believe, along with many Bible scholars, that this acceptable year of the Lord began by the arrival of the Messiah when Jesus came to the scene, when he lived a perfect life, when he died on the cross, when he rose again, when he authenticated and proved that he is the Messiah. We are mandated to preach within a time frame. I came to remind you this morning that you will not always have time to preach the gospel there will come a day when time will end there will come a day when our preaching will end pastor jamal there will come a day when your work and my work will be over there will come a day when we hand over my suffering to another pastor the chief shepherd himself right. my work will be over there will come a day when I will no longer need to go to Africa because the time yes. will have yes. ended. Yes. I don't always have the time to do what I do. Ladies and gentlemen, you see, you think and I think that we do, but we don't. 
if anybody in this building is going to serve God, this is the day, this is the week, this is the month, and this is the year. I cannot promise you next year. I cannot. I'm going to thank you. There's a child there saying that is true. That is true. I want to I wanna share with you a story in ending to prove my point. The year was 1999, and I'm coming to America for the first time ever. And in order to convince the embassy, American embassy, that you are not running away from your country, but you will come here and study and go back, you must provide something that shows that you have attachment, an attachment to your country. And like a title deed of the land. But so anyway, I, I go home and I talk to my dad about the title deed, but my dad does not have the title deed of the land that he owns. So I cannot use that title deed. And I'm wondering, what in the world am I going to do? So I go to my uncle, who is a staunch Muslim. By the way, I come from an Islamic background. And he, he just lost his wife of HIV AIDS. This is my real, my real uncle. And he has one son. But I don't know what to do, so I, I, I go to him. I'm a Christian. I go to him, and I tell him, uncle, they need a title deed at the embassy. And my, my dad does not have one. And so he asked me, what do you want me to do for you? He said, can you, can you transfer my name into, into your title deed? This is a very, very difficult thing I'm asking him. He's about, he's, he is sickly. He has, a, he has one son. He just lost his wife. This is the only land he has. And I'm asking him to let that land be in my name. Long story short. He agrees because he respects me very much. But he is a die-hard Muslim. But respects me very much. Anyway, I am with him and we are processing the title deed. Uh, uh, and, and I have so many, many opportunities to witness to him. We travel in a bus together to go to the office. We eat together. Every time we eat, he would ask me to pray. And the Holy Spirit within me is telling me, witness to him, witness to him, witness to him. But I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, listen, Holy Spirit, I'm going to Nairobi and I'm going to the embassy. When I am done getting my visa, I'm going to come back and I'm going to witness to my uncle before I go to America. So, so, but, but the Holy Spirit is telling me, why not now? Why not now? But I'm telling him, no, 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 no. Fast things fast. I'm going to the embassy to get my visa. And when I'm done getting my visa, I will come back. Before I go to America, I will witness to my uncle. Anyway, long story short, I get the title deed. I go to Nairobi to get my visa in hope that I will return back to Africa and witness to my, I mean, back to uh, southern Kenya and witness to my uncle. I come to Nairobi uh, three days when I return to Nairobi, I get a telegram. My uncle passed away. I go back to southern Kenya. There is a tradition when somebody dies, you walk to their grave and you pray. I don't pray for the dead. The dead are dead. I pray for the living. I pray that God will do something. Anyway, I walk in there, go to the Islamic cemetery, I am escorted by my cousins and family members and I go and all of us are gathered around the grave and we begin, I begin to pray. And in the middle of my prayer, something happened. Don't walk away here saying I said God, uh, the dead spoke to me. That is not what I'm saying. But something happened. In the middle of my prayer, it was like my uncle was speaking to me from the grave. Nobody knew it. Nobody had it. In my heart, I am praying in the middle of prayer. There is this voice in my head saying, Son, I loved you so much. I gave you 11.4 acres of land. I did this disregarding my own son. And you 
said that you believe in Christ, you hypocrite. If you believed in that Christ that much, why didn't you share him with me? What are you coming to do by my grave when I'm dead? And in the middle of my prayer, I stopped abruptly and I began to walk away with my head down. You see, I thought that I had enough time that I would come back and witness to him. But I didn't know that he had only three days to live. I'm going to tell you another story, another uncle. Before, in about the same time frame, this is a distant uncle, not a real one. He too is sick. HIV AIDS. This is a time when HIV AIDS is wiping Africa out. He too is sick. The whole village has left him. His wife just ran away. He is alone in this lonely hut. And something tells me to go and pray with him. And I walk into his room. And I find that he is in his bedroom. According to tradition, a son does not go into his uncle or his father's uh, bedroom. Because that is a private place. But, but my uncle cannot walk to the living room. And so I break the taboo and I walk into his bedroom. Long story short. Learning from what just happened to my other uncle. My, this uncle talked to me. He said, son, my wife has gone. The whole village has left me. And I'm left in this bed to die alone. And I was coming to America and I knew that I was not going to see him again. So I, I told him, uncle, give me your hand. Right now, I'm going to lead you into a prayer. Because I want to leave you with a friend that will stay closer than a brother. I want to leave you with a friend that will not run when your wife runs away. I want to leave you with a friend that will not run away when the whole village goes. And when I go, I leave you now, he will be here for you. So right in that bed, I held his hands and I led him to the Lord. And I looked at his face and I said, Uncle, I may never see you again in this life. But we will meet again when the morning comes. Long story short, I go to Nairobi and I have about 14 days to come to America. In about six days, that uncle passed away too. But ladies and gentlemen, listen. This is the point I want you to get. This story of two uncles reminds us of something. There is coming a day of judgment. The first judgment is called the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat. This is where all believers will gather to be rewarded on what they did for Jesus after their salvation. And when I attend this judgment seat of Christ, I will see my second uncle there because he knows Jesus. But after that judgment, there will be another judgment. It is called in theological terms, the white throne judgment. This is the judgment of all unbelievers because the Bible says, for uh, uh, whosoever name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast in the lake of fire. And in that last judgment of those unbelievers, I too will be there because the Bible says we will judge with Christ. But what is going to be very sad it's because it is very possible I'm going to see that first uncle. His face and mine are going to connect for the last time when he walks on his way to hell. You see the difference between these two uncles? The first uncle, I was so obsessed with my coming to America. 
It was all about me that I did not care about the opportunity God gave me. And I thought that I had all the time in the world. I did not. And you do not. That's a big difference. The difference between the two uncles is that somebody cared enough to talk about Jesus to the second uncle and did not care enough to talk about Jesus to the first uncle. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't always have the time to do what we do. I want to ask you a question. If you had only this year, what would you do with it? If you had only this month, what would you do with it? If you had only this week, what would you do with it? If you had only today, what would you do with it? You know what? I pray you live for another thousand years, but I don't know. This must be the last time you see me or the last time I see you. And ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is saying, he said it this way. I must do the works of him who sent me. Because the night is coming that no man can walk. The night will come either by Christ coming or by you dying or something happening, the world ending. The night is coming. If you're going to witness to your neighbor, if you're going to serve missions, if you want to be serious about this church, if you want to leave this place today, your heart and mind renewed, today is the day to do it. Because the message is measured. We have a Messiah we must talk about to the world. We have a world that is sick and dying. We must rush and proclaim liberty to. We have a deadline. We have today, this week, this month, and this year. As you go home today, I realize that some of the people we neglect the most are people who are close to us. Our cousins and our friends, by the way, I preached this message to Dr. Kevin Smith's church. At that point, his father was sick. When I was done preaching, he and his wife pulled me aside and a Watson Memorial. And he said, I'm going to jump into the car today and I'm going to go and witness to my dad. And less than, I think, two weeks or thereabout, his father passed away. Do you know somebody that you need to talk to, talk to about Jesus? Family member. You see? You are not sent to save them. Just talk to them about Jesus. Just talk to them. Once again, do you know Jesus as Savior today? It, with you too, time is measured. This might be the only opportunity. I pray that you come today. Pray for somebody or come and receive Jesus. Be serious about missions. Thank you for standing with me to proclaim liberty to the world that needs Jesus so much. We have a savior that we must proclaim to the world. God bless you so much.